Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so... Do you get tired of hearing the same old intros to podcast episodes? Me too. Hi, I'm not Jen. I'm Jessica, and I'm in rural East Panama. Jen has just created a new way for listeners to record the introductions to podcast episodes, and I got to test it out. There's no other resource out there quite like your parenting mojo, which doesn't just tell you about the latest scientific research on parenting and child development, but puts it in context for you as well, so you can decide whether and how to use this new information. If you'd like to get new episodes in your inbox, along with a free infographic on 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, sign up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe and come over to our free Facebook group to continue the conversation about this episode. You can also thank Jen for this episode by donating to keep the podcast ad-free by going to the page for this or any other episode on yourparentingmojo.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with someone about this episode or know someone who would find it useful, please forward it to them. Over time, you're going to get sick of hearing me read this intro as well, so come and record one yourself. You can read from a script she's provided or have some real fun with it and write your own. Just go to yourparentingmojo.com and click read the intro. I can't wait to hear yours. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We're here with a very special guest today, parent Iris. Iris, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us just a little bit about you and your family. Where are you in the world? Where are you from? Yeah, I live in the West Coast of Canada in the city of Vancouver with my husband and my almost seven-year-old daughter, Malaya. And Malaya is feisty and funny and she's just this energetic bunny. Oh, she's human, but (laughs) not a rabbit, but, you know, she is like an energizer bunny just going on and on and on. And I work in a field where... Not many people want to talk about it or maybe even think about it. And that is in the field of death and dying. And so I guess most parents are familiar with childbirth educator or birth doula. And so I like to think of it, not my work, not as an opposite, but as the other part of life. So I support people who are grieving and, you know, practical and heart-centered and life planning. So it's from wills and advanced care directives to like, you know, how would you like to be cared for after you die and rituals and ceremonies and things like that. I'm an end of life educator and end of life doula. Hmm. And one important thing, I immigrated to Canada from the Philippines in 2005. And in the summer of that year, I met a man that became my husband. (laughs) And in the beginning, I was sort of sitting on the fence, I'm going to have a child. My husband already had a daughter from a previous marriage, but he was asking me, okay, if you want a child, like, you know, you decide I'm okay either way. And at first I was like, oh, you know, like, you know, this philosophical and existential kind of like back and forth. And so I was trying to get pregnant and I knew I wanted a child when it was clear that I probably wouldn't get pregnant. Like, you know, I mean, I was having a hard time getting pregnant. And so after six years, six years of fertility treatment and roller coaster of emotions at the ripe age of 41, (laughs) 
I gave birth to Malaya. And by this time, I've had a, I would say, meaningful and successful work life. And so in positions of like big responsibility. And I was like, hmm, motherhood, I'll be okay. I've done these things. And like motherhood, it's just, I can do this. Ha, huh? famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And of course, there's the added challenge of when you've worked so hard to have a baby and then to have these moments where you just want to wring that child's neck. <laughs> it's exactly. like, how can these two things go together? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the reason that I wanted to talk with you is because you've just finished the most recent round of the Taming Your Triggers workshop. And this was not your first time. <laughs> <laughs> and I first realized that you'd taken it multiple times when I think you were on your third time around. And I think you'd maybe lurked in the community a first couple of times. And so I didn't really know that you were there as much. <laughs> and then when I saw your name come through again on the participant list, my first thought was this massive hot flush of shame, because I was just thinking, why do people have to come back and do this multiple times? If I was a good teacher, shouldn't I be able to transfer this knowledge to you and send you out the door and to live your life? And so there was this real moment of fear and shame when I first saw that you were taking the workshop multiple times. And so I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about how this has played out for you, what this process has been like for you as you've navigated your journey with <laughs> having triggers with your very spirited daughter? Yeah. So first off, Jen, I like to say sorry for triggering <laughs> your shame or something. Apology accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. The first two times I was just lurking around the community, and I will talk more about that. When I decided to come out as a repeater of the Taming Your Trigger workshop, it was because I wanted you and the others to know that I truly, truly believe in the workshop that you have designed. And by this time, I've also followed you, not in a stalker creepy way, but I followed your podcast <laughs> for quite a while. And so I knew that I needed this, that I knew that I was one of those in your advertisement. If you are this and that and this, oh, oh my goodness, I check all the lists. And so I knew that there was no doubt in my mind that it was going to be transformative for me. That's why I kept on joining the third and the fourth time. I'd say to people, I've done this several times. I'm not ashamed to say that. And I'm not proud either. It's just, it is what it is. So your question about how the journey taking the Taming Your Trigger workshop multiple times, before I will answer that question, I want to give a little bit of context. First off, uh, context of my life so that people will have more understanding. I grew up in a urban poor neighborhood in the Philippines. People did not really have enough material things and we relied on each other for material or personal support. And so, for example, you'd go like, oh, I need to prepare dinner. But then, oh, we don't have rice because rice is very important. <laughs> and then my mother will just say, okay, go next door and ask our neighbor to just borrow a kilo of rice and then we will replace it later. So yeah, no problem with that. Or for example, a neighbor would say, oh, I need to go to the market, but 
I need somebody to keep an eye on my children. And there's no problem because it's okay. We can supervise, we can look after them. They're mostly independent. And so there was really a strong sense of community and like people really in birth or or death and all the life situations in between, there's really that community. You know, your neighbors got your back or your extended family got your back. So I did not know I was poor. Like, I was just like, like, you know, like I was just being a kid. It was when I went to school that I realized, oh, other people have other situation. And you see, my mother worked as a dressmaker in a a private Catholic, very upscale school. And the tuition fee there was like, there's no way we could have afforded the tuition fee. But because she was working there and employees, that's one of their privileges or benefits, I guess. I was there and my classmates were like daughters, because this is all girls school, daughter of congressman or politician. And then, you know, like they have businesses, they own restaurants and all those things. And I was the dressmaker's daughter, which was fine because many of my classmates knew her and even called her Nanai, which means mother. I called my mother Nanai. They would also call her. And so I felt that I was liked, you know, except for the rich, poor thing. I was like, I had friends. I did not feel quite deprived in that area. But I can see that now they have the nice shoes, whereas my shoes is like my toe would be showing. (laughs) Yeah, I had good grades and I was active in extracurricular activities. So my life here in Canada, of course, is like very, very different from my life there. Of course, Malaya likely not experienced that life of sense of scarcity and economic insecurity. And so that is one of my trigger, you know, like, all those things. And so I've always, since I moved here, there were, of course, a lot of things that I really enjoyed and everything, but I felt the absence of my community and I felt the loss of my very wide support system. And I felt this very acutely after I gave birth. So it wasn't a surprise to me when my doctor said, Iris, you have postpartum depression. And I sort of knew it beforehand because I've been having low-grade depression since I came here. And like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist (laughs) to know know that. So I joined a lot of support groups for new moms. I was in individual counseling. And that's one good thing about being here in Canada. There's like social support system as well. For a long time, I was really resisting taking medication. I know in some areas, this is all hush-hush when it comes to mental health and medication. I just want to lay it all out on the table. And for a long time, I resisted getting medication because I saw it as a sign of weakness. And, you know, I was like, oh, I was a school guidance counselor. So I knew this things and mental health, blah, blah, blah. And I started a nonprofit organization and I was... I can do this. Of course, motherhood is a totally different ball game. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. <laughs> yeah. So was there a specific incident that caused you to say, I need more help than I'm getting right now. I need to do something differently than what I'm doing right now. Yeah, for sure. So actually two instances. First, when Malaya was about three years old, we were in the park and I usually pack food, like, you know, snacks and things like that. I was hungry. 
And that's one of my factors. <laughs> I was hungry and she was at the stage, Jen, where like you ask her for something and you know, like, mm, no, I won't give you. And I kept on asking because I was really hungry and she really wouldn't give me. And I packed for both of us, by the way. And then a crow swooped in and got into the container. I don't know if it's grapes or nuts. All of those things spilled out on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I was just so, so angry. Like, like, I feel this hot thing coming out from my gut here and just like, and Malaya started crying. Mm. Because she felt that energy and I felt very guilty about that. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And yet I also recognized that there was something so primal in being denied. And I'll put that quote unquote, being denied food. I wasn't rational at all. Mm -hmm. And then the other instance was when out of the blue, Malaya asked me, Mama, why are you always angry? And the way she asked it was really significant to me because she asked it out of curiosity. Mm. It wasn't, there was no judgment. She just like wanted to understand and concern in her voice. Like, why is this? And so I'm all for being open and vulnerable and showing all facets of myself to my daughter. But I just had this instinctive feeling that it's not good for a child to be always looking at her parent who's supposed to take care of her and always like erupting like a volcano every hour or something. <laughs> so that's when I need more help than the the medication. I need more help than counseling. I need more help than all these things I'm doing for myself to help me. Yeah. Okay. And so you've been through this and we have actually lost track or I have at least lost yeah. track. I am uncertain <laughs> if we are on round number four or number five at this point. Yeah. But what I'm wondering is if a person's listening to this thinking, well, I don't want to have to go through this thing four or five times to actually do something different. So yeah. what, what would you say to somebody who's thinking that, okay, yes, I see myself exploding sometimes as well, or maybe I'm not an exploding kind of person. I'm a freeze up kind of person or a walk away kind of person or a fawn and just get the crying or the screaming to stop kind of person. If I'm seeing myself having these reactions to my child's behavior and I'm thinking, but I don't want to have to do the same thing four or five times to do something different. What would you say to somebody who's in that position right now? The first two times when I was lurking, <laughs> I can tell you exactly what I was doing, even if I sort of petered out. So I was really spending a lot of time identifying my triggers, seeing what are the factors that caused me to erupt. The main thing that I was really working on in the first module, I think, Jen, was the window of tolerance mm -hmm. and how to increase our window of tolerance. And I know that like being hungry, being tired, being sleep deprived, those are the factors to narrow my window of tolerance. So the next time I did the course again, I made sure that I have support, something like cooking a big batch of food so that I don't have to be like, oh my God, like to cook and again and again and again every day. <laughs> <laughs> and then also I scheduled more sessions with my therapist. I just made sure I said no to other time commitments or other things that get my attention and called my friends and say, can you please poke me when you don't see me? Like, can you say, oh, are we going for a walk or something? So those things, I like to think of my four or five times in the workshop as I'd like to imagine myself as like a horse trainer 
and the process of taming my own trigger is the wild horse. And so the first few times was just about me getting into the saddle and just like holding on and just, of course, right now I'm not the star in the rodeo or however you call that. I think I am staying in the saddle long enough to enjoy the ride. That was it. And then every time I register again, I learn more and more and I cover more and more module. And one thing that really was quite helpful to me was when you reorganize the modules, it's the things that help us with our triggers and not just like analyzing all our triggers. Mm -hmm. And this last time, there's the call and I had my food ready and all this other support. And it was just this kind of fruit salad of all these things that Mm -hmm. really kept me sitting on the saddle long enough to spend time with my wild horse of triggers. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love the metaphor. And yeah, I just want to sort of translate a couple of things that you said for folks who are newer to this. What I'm hearing from you is that I've added to the content over the times that I've done it, but it hasn't changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. Or first, they organized it logically, (laughs) (laughs) having all these logical skills, thinking this is the way people need to hear it. First of all, you need to understand where are your triggers coming from. And then once you understand that, you can learn what to do about them. But of course, what we found is that in the actual experience of this, they want more time with the tools. They need more practice with the tools and they don't want to spend five weeks wallowing around in why do I feel so crappy so much of the time before they start learning those tools. So yeah, we started alternating the module content so that we take a module where we're understanding what's the cause of our triggers, our triggered feelings. And then we start learning a new tool. And then the next week revert to another, dig a bit deeper on where is this coming from? Okay, now let's bring in another aspect of the tool. So, I mean, my logical brain just goes wild with it. I'm like, I can't believe we're doing it like this. But it seemed as though it really, really helped people to get the practice they need with it. And also to not feel as though, oh my goodness, when are we actually going to learn the stuff that's going to help rather than just the understanding of where it came from? So I think that part's important. And then the second part that I think is super important is basically what your metaphor is saying is that very often it's our brains that are trying to protect us (laughs) from engaging with this content. It's not necessarily that I added new content that you had to keep coming back for. It's that your brain was putting into place all of these mechanisms to say, this is really scary and I'm not ready to deal with this right now. And so I remember you telling me that you would have these really physical responses. You would be physically ill after going through this and this does not happen to everybody. And the experience of it was overwhelming and, you know, not everybody is going to need massive meal planning and and all of the other stuff. But if you are a kind of person who processes things very deeply, then those Mm -hmm. kinds of supports can be super useful. You know, the time commitment itself is not very much, but when you're really trying to shift something, it can take a lot out of you. And the Mm -hmm. deeper you engage with that, (laughs) the more your brain is thinking, but I use these ways of being in the world to protect myself. I set these things up to protect myself. And you're saying, yes, Thank you for doing that. I'm so glad you did that. Mm -hmm. And also it's not helping me anymore. And so I'm going to try and learn some new tools. And so that's you hanging on this time. You've gotten beyond the phase where you're just hanging on eyes wide, (laughs) trying to stay on as the bucking bronco is trying to kick you off. And you're like, okay, we're here now. (laughs) This is what we're doing. Yeah. That's one thing too. I'm a person who like embodies learning. And so I know lots of things in my head, but it doesn't click. 
a reaction. It's I have physical, visceral reaction too. So, and I know not many people are like that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not maybe not as strongly, but just on the point of the embodied learning. I mean, that's really what we're going for through the workshop is what I call a non-cognitive shift. It's not that hard to read the content. And think, okay, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm going to start doing that now. That part is not hard. The part that is much harder is taking on these ideas, not up here in your brain, mm -hmm. but in your body. So it's just part of how you exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the non-cognitive shift part. And you can't predict that. You can't set it up. You can't say, okay, practice this meditation technique for five hours a day. And on day six, you're, it's going to happen. <laughs> no. It's something that happens unique to every person. Some people, it doesn't happen. Some people are like, whoa, now I see things in a totally different way than I did before. Mm -hmm. Do you remember having a specific non-cognitive shift or was it more of a general sense for you? There were several moments actually when it felt kind of like chick. <laughs> and this last time when we had our calls, that first session that we had, like my life is hard and my life in the Philippines was hard. They're both hard and you cannot compare those, yeah. those two things. And I remember you guiding me, repeating like, this is hard. There's this thing that sort of like came down on me and, and then I accepted it that, okay, this is hard. Even with all this material things, all the resources, it's hard. And I really felt it in my body and I accepted it. Mm. <laughs> I thought of that before many times, but there's just this like, no, like, you know, this kind of critical voice. And that's one moment. And the other moment to that sort of clicked for me in terms of like what to do or the techniques, Jen, is so that first call, you guided me through the process. And I remember I was like a runaway train. <laughs> You know, this one and, and this one and my mother is a Jesus and now I don't have the feeling I was like runaway train. I cannot stop myself. And then you said something about like touch the the surface of the kitchen counter. Not me, but the computer was on the kitchen <laughs> counter. The smoothness just brought me back. And so that sort of halted the runaway train. And I remember I was sobbing and I was just like so like woo, full of all these emotions. And then I said something like, I want to throw things. I want to scream. I want to like, and so you said, okay, feel free to scream. I muted my zoom thing. I just let out this like very primal scream that came from here. And I was just like, it felt good. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt good to be lifting with my voice. I lifted that burden or whatever it was. And, mm. and so in that first session, you guided me through like grounding technique. Okay. Touch that smooth counter, things like that. And then I also remember very vividly our second to the last call, you were guiding us through an imagery of, I think it was like we were, in front of a pond or near a pond and we were to put our concerns or worries in the pond, like drop them there. And I remember I was lying down and my computer was just nearby. And then my brain started going runaway train again. Oh my God, this brain. And in my imagery, I did not hear your voice anymore. In my imagery, I was 
in the pond. I was drowning and I, you know, was having a hard time. And instinctively, I did not even think about it. I reached for my laptop and just touched the smooth surface of my laptop. And that brought me back. Okay, I'm not really in there. I can bring myself back. And maybe for my husband is very logical, Jen, and as a science and math person. And so stories will maybe sort of like, oh, strange to him. And I know some of the listeners may be like that too but then i'm just like this is my reality and this is my truth so we can all live together in harmony the logical and the illogical people emotional people like me so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean oh my goodness you just took me back to that call when we do the group coaching calls we have them uh, usually every other week yeah so i think the one you were talking about was probably this first call you mentioned was probably the second call when we built oh. up a little bit of trust between the participants and, oh, okay. and yeah. there to port each other and yeah i remember you were sort of spiraling, right? And this is a grounding technique of, of reaching out and touching something that's around you that gets you out of your stories. I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about that scream. I was actually hoping you would leave the microphone on so that we could hear it, but you turned it off and you put it on mute. And I wonder actually if that made it even more indelible because I just remember you were hunched over and so you were in one corner of the frame and your whole face is, I mean, the scream is just taking over every part of you that I can see. It was just such a primal vision visceral moment. And then it really did feel as though that shifted something for you. And then I think one thing that people who are new to group coaching are like, isn't it weird to be talking about yourself with other people who are watching, but, and could it really help me if I'm not the one being talked to? And what was really interesting, I think for the people watching was to see you just be so raw and vulnerable. And then 10 minutes later, I was talking to somebody else and I saw you sitting there eating your breakfast. <laughs> and I True. said, you, just, uh, you know, zoom in on this moment for a second. And you were like totally placid. <laughs> yeah. Like with the water metaphor. And, and I think it was just such a profound realization for people on the call to see that we can be in what just feels like it's just taking over our bodies. And if we don't hang on to it, if we let it pass through us, it will keep going. It's when we hang on that it creates so much struggle for us mm-hmm. and then it's okay. And then we can move on with our life and sit there and have our breakfast and hear other people being coached and get something out of that. So mm-hmm. that was truly a profound moment for me. And I think also for a lot of people on the call who are watching that as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you want to speak maybe to, we have these group calls and yeah. I coach you through different exercises and stuff. Um, is it weird for you? Is it, <laughs> is any of the meditation stuff? You're like, why are we doing this? And then you do it, you know, I help you to do it. And then you do it yourself and you're like, oh, the penny drops. <laughs> what is that process like for you of being on those calls? I am a learner who is like more into like talking and being in groups and I learn better with others. And so the call I think was really, really made a very big difference to me, to the kind of learner that I am. And I'm also more of like an interpersonal or intrapersonal like reflection. What you will say is weird is are not weird to me. And so a very rich learning environment for me. And the other thing too, is that in this work, there are times when it seems like it's so much and there are other like stresses in our life and that it's easy not to 
read the module not to and not to attend the calls but for me i feel this connection with others so there were a couple of times when i was like oh maybe i'll just watch netflix or maybe whatever you know but then i told myself this is not just about me this is about showing up for people and being there and listening to their stories. And I work that way. If it's for somebody else, I have more motivation. So that was really important to me to be present for other people the way that they have been present to me. And one other thing, I learn a lot. And in fact, it, this is nicer because in therapy, it's just me, right? Like, unless if it's a group therapy, it takes out more of me in terms of energy. Being in a group, if you are sort of guiding somebody else through the process of what their issues are. Sometimes it's the exact same thing that I'm also experiencing. You just change the name of the child to Malaya. There are some little things and it applies. And in its specificity, there is a universality to it. And I learn just by being there, by listening. And the other thing too is, um, I think you notice this towards the end of our session, more and more people have something to say to each other, maybe not in the beginning, but I think attending the calls with openness and also like really vulnerability and just this being there as you are, even in your pajamas, I think it really fosters this connection with others. Those were really life-changing for me, the process of being in this small group with this other women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm often, often, and I think the participants are as well, struck by the fact that you could be talking with someone from a completely different country, from a different culture, you change out the child's name, the exact circumstance was different, their thing was about getting their kid in the car seat, and your thing is about, you know, mess in the house or something else, yeah. and you switch out the detail, <laughs> and you're nodding as if this is not a thing for you. And you switch out the precise details, and participants are often like, that's me. <laughs> that is me. That is describing what happened to me yesterday or last week or in this yeah. other interaction. And I think people don't realize until they hear that. Firstly, I'm not alone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the only one struggling with this. I'm not the only one having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And secondly, just what a profound experience it is to hear somebody themselves make this kind of shift, that non-cognitive shift. You're not on the spot. You're not the one who actually has to go through it in that moment, but you see how well it applies to your life. And that enables you to uh, apply these ideas, even though you weren't necessarily being the one being coached. Yeah. And you said an important word there too, Jen, this, the community and just the feeling that, okay, I'm not the only one. I'm not this weird, bad, quote unquote, mother who cannot handle her child. There are other mothers or parents who experience this too. And just that knowledge alone, very freeing. Yeah, for sure. And then I think the other thing that's really important in what you said is on our last call in this series, when you all had gotten to know each other pretty well by that point, and you'd shared some pretty vulnerable moments in your lives and the participants on the call started coaching each other and not in a, oh, you should do this or you should do that. But it was just this beautiful moment of 
empathy for each other and and supporting each other through the learning and applying the learning of the tools that we had been working on over the last 10 weeks or so. It's really interesting for me because this was my experience listening to other participants when they share their story. I'm thinking like, you could have tried this or you could have tried that. But then because it's out of me, because it's somebody else. But of course, if I'm in the exact same situation, I'll be like at a loss. That's one of the things that I really appreciate. The confidence like I can see in the other participants, like this kind of like the face is just clearer and like, something that I can see and I felt as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's different now then? I'm not expecting this story about how you're fixed now and you never exploded your kids (laughs) anymore. (laughs) But what is different? What shifts have you seen in how you're able to show up with her and how you're able to be with her? First thing is that it feels okay that I'm not perfect. It feels okay that I have all these mistakes and it feels okay. And in my body, like sometimes I just say it in my head, it feels okay that I have these mistakes and then I correct them. I talk to Malaya about like, oh, I'm sorry, I I was pretty grumpy earlier, wasn't I? So that's the first thing, to be a good enough mother, a good enough parent, and to heck with perfection. Like, <laughs> So that's one of the things, one of the things that has really shifted for me that I feel in my body. The other thing is the, how the terrible, endless math of comparison. I touched on that earlier when I would usually think, oh, before I was poor and now I'm privileged. And, and also my mother was working long hours and now I have almost everything that I want and all of the things that I need. And, and, oh, I remember getting really depressed after I took the ACE. And the reason I was depressed was because my score was not as high as I thought it would be. And I was like, Iris, you're just in the middle of the ACE. And why are you in this miserable state? And then I just started to very slowly dawn on me that, my struggles are my struggles and my struggles now are my struggles now. And it's different from the next person. And that's okay. It's not a contest and it's not about who has the worst or the better misery because I was really sort of beating my chest with like somebody else's ACE is higher than you. And why are you like that? Look at this person. Like she's way more resilient. And so I was raised Catholic too, Jen. So there's that self-flagellation. Yeah. (laughs) And then the other thing too, is that I'm starting to let go of the old stories, the stories that doesn't serve me anymore. I remember I had some issues with my computer one time before a call. And I said something about my neighbor who was the tech guy looked at my computer and said that, You haven't updated your operating system for years. I was just like, oh, this is the metaphor of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't updated my operating system. And one specific example of that is like, I don't know if this will come as a surprise to you. I was not the most obedient child. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not shocked. (laughs) (laughs) And my father, when he gets frustrated with me, he would say like, Iris, 
the time will come when you will have your own child and your child be more difficult than you. And I curse you. And so I thought that this was some kind of a curse on me. And so when I was having a hard time with Malaya, I was like, oh my God, this is the curse. <laughs> you know, it's parenting is just difficult, whether you are cursed. <laughs> <laughs> and the other important thing that I'm still continuing to sort of like percolate in my mind is how I see power and respect, respect for the elders, for those who are older than you. It is no buts, no ifs. Like, don't question and all these things. But then Malaya, he is here in Canada and she's a totally different person. And of course, I don't want her to walk all over me and be like abusive or something. But like she can say her piece and I try to talk to her about decisions and, you know, her opinions. There is one example for this. She was getting ready for her musical theater class and she is this like like she, she's just this person and so I said I used my Filipino mom tactic I said oh Malaya you are dilly-dallying there if you are late to your practice to your rehearsal teacher will replace you and then I said like that she went to the breakfast table and then after a while she said mama I don't think the teachers will do that because First of all, that's mean. And second, we're children. And she said, I don't think they will replace me. And then she said, I've memorized my lines. I know where to go. So I was like, dang, my scaring tactics. <laughs> and I just laughed. No, I said, yeah, you're right. But if it was a different, when I was growing up, it was like, you do this, no questions, just follow yeah. And that's the thing about that respect, right? In air quotes is it's one way. It's you child will respect me parent yes. because I'm older. And because I said so, <laughs> there's no respect that flows the other way. And so mm. whether or not you come from the Philippines, <laughs> I think that adultish culture has been the same in many, many, many places around the world, particularly places with a colonial history, including yeah. the US, including England. And that this idea of the child respecting the parent is paramount. But if we think about it, is it really respect? Isn't it more fear? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really respect that we're feeling when our parent is trying to coerce us into doing something because that's the only tool that they have, right? In in that in that difficult moment, that was the only tool that you thought you had to get her out the door to go. Whereas now you have tools where you know how to reconnect, <laughs> to step back and say, okay. We're having a hard time this morning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think the other thing you touched on that's really important is the idea of the self-flagellation and the guilt. And that shows up in so many ways in the, well, I should know better. I know what to do. Like I, I'm in all these positive parenting groups and I know the things to say. And in the moment, I just can't make it happen. <laughs> I yeah. just can't apply the knowledge that I have learned. And those are the ripe moments for the old whip on the back to be mm. taken out, primed by our cultural heritage. I'll speak to the white Western world and I'm sure Catholicism has its version of it too. If you have this knowledge, then all you need is willpower. And if you apply that willpower, you will be able to make the change. And that's not always the case. Do you see less of that sort of guilt and self-flagellation now? What's happened there? 
Yeah. One of the things that transformed for me was like from self-flagellation to self-compassion. An example of this is like, I am now more aware of my boundaries and my limits and just like, okay, I'm tired. And so the kitchen counter is still like a mess, but I need to do something that is nourishing for me. And so I will leave that kitchen and go back to it later. And so one time there was um, that exact moment. One nourishing thing that really, really helps me is connecting with people, especially after like the whole day in the computer just by myself. So I went down to the courtyard and I chatted with people and just like being out and being with other human beings, grown ups. <laughs> Being with grown-ups, that really rejuvenated me. And so I came back here to the kitchen and then Malaya came home from school. She said, Mama, can I watch TV? So, yes, go for it. And then when it was time to turn off the TV, she had a big meltdown, a very, very big meltdown. And she was saying, you're mean, you're a bad mama. Like, you're the worst ever, like all these things. And for those kinds of things, really like, like, you know, it really gets me going. But because I paused earlier in that afternoon to just recharge myself, then I had the space inside of me to just pause and not get angry and looked at her and just allowed her to release whatever this pent up emotion and not say like, how dare you or things like that. And so after a while, she mellowed down and she went and with her toys and then I was making dinner and then she said, mama. So she was calling me and I said, okay, yes, Malaya, what can I do for you? And then she said, I love you. You're the best mom ever. I said, okay, thank you. I love you too. So, but I knew if it was like the before times, <laughs> she and I will be like this. So those are the kinds of things that really made some transformed things for me, not just in this big, like macro, big picture way, but this like small moments. Yeah. just want to pull out a couple of key moments in, in what you were describing there. I think the first one is you looked at the kitchen and it's so easy just to get sucked in in that moment and think, I have to tidy it up. There is no other option here. <laughs> I cannot let this go. And instead you noticed that you were in this almost sort of a choice point kind of moment. And okay, there's this thing that is going to need to be done at some point. And also I need some nourishment. <laughs> and these two activities are not necessarily going to fit well together. Maybe that there are probably some people who get some nourishment from cleaning. I think those people are, are out there in the world. I'm not one of them. You're not one of them. <laughs> and you saw that you needed something different. And then you went and did that. You put, you put something in place that said, I am going to take some time for myself. I am worthy of taking time for myself that is not connected to cleaning. Yeah. And that created a wider window of tolerance for you. Mm -hmm. And then when your daughter's having this meltdown, 
that wider window of tolerance enables you to not just click into your old patterns, your old ways of reacting. Mm -hmm. It created that pause and that pause is like the magic moment, right? That's when everything happens. And that's what we spend so much time on in the workshop is creating and lengthening that pause so that you have that time to choose how you're going to respond instead of just having the instant reaction. And then the third piece to come out of it, of course, is, is going from, I hate you, you're a terrible parent to, I love you, mama. Mm -hmm. And I think, what is she really saying here? Right. What she's saying is I needed that space and I felt safe because you allowed me that space. And I love you for what you were able to give to me in that moment when I was really struggling. That's what she's saying. Right. When, when she's saying that right after that happened. So um, that makes me feel like, Oh, cry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's so profound. If you break these interactions down and say, okay, what is really happening here? Where is my behavior coming from? Why am I having a hard time? Where is my child's behavior coming from? Mm-hmm. Why are they having a hard time? And, and of course you could also use some of the other tools we talked about to understand, is this about TV? Is this about something that happened at school today? What's really going on in all of this? But you held space in that moment. You didn't try to fix any problem. <laughs> you didn't try and talk her down. You just allowed her to express what she needed to express. And over time, the form of that expression will shift and some children will throw things. And we're, of course, coaching them to express their feelings in a way that isn't destructive to people or property. Mm-hmm. But we're holding space for even the most difficult feelings so that when they have difficult feelings in the future, when they're older, when things get really hairy, that yeah. <laughs> they know that, that we can be there for them for, through that because we've showed it to them so many times throughout the path so mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's such profound groundwork that you're laying here. It's incredible. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your experience or, or what has shifted for you through the workshop? I'm also in the parenting group and the learning membership. So when you said you didn't really stalk me, that was, <laughs> it was only partially true. <laughs> Yeah, I think of the Taming Your Triggers workshop as you not giving a formula. I wish there was some kind of magic formula, but of course... Wouldn't it be easier? It it would probably be easier and you will be a millionaire. I would. (laughs) What I was getting was not a formula, but more of a recipe and recipe for cooking. I know in baking, it has to be some prescriptive thing but you gave us a recipe for like suggestion of like okay you can cook it like this or you can cook it like that and not just the way how to cook it quote unquote but also you gave us the ingredients like mindfulness and those really like the grounding techniques and problem solving skills all those ingredients I don't have an abundance of them but they are there I can pull some to depending on the situation with my daughters. I'm also moving from the guilt that I've been feeling to more of a gratitude that it's okay. I'm here. I'm not perfect, but I'm here and I'm holding on to my saddle and I'm enjoying my ride a little bit. I think your work is really important, not just to parents, but in the whole world, which is probably kind of like, oh, in parenting our children in a way that will make our world a more just place. I think that if we see your work in that context, you're really doing a great work for the world, not just for us parents. So 
Thank you. So the gratitude there also for you and for all the other participants who joined your workshop and membership group. So thank you so much, Iris. Yeah, I, that is my hope as well, that we're not just doing this thing for ourselves and for our own children, as important as that is. I truly believe that if that is our only focus, that we've missed something huge and that it is through using these kinds of tools and raising children who will go out in the world with a sense of what it means to truly listen for the sake of understanding, for truly understanding another person's needs, and then working together to see how can we meet both people's needs. I think that we can do a lot to change the world (laughs) using those kinds of tools. So I'm so grateful that you came around again (laughs) for the workshop (laughs) and and also took the time to share a little bit with us about what your experience was like here today. Thanks so much, Iris. It's always such a great time talking with you. Thank you, Jen. And so anyone who wants to learn more about the Taming Your Triggers workshop can find that information at Mm yourparentingmojo.com forward slash Taming Your Triggers. Hi, this is Jess from Verulis, Panama. I'm a Your Parenting Mojo fan, and I hope you enjoy this show as much as I do. If you found this episode especially enlightening or useful, you can also donate to help Jen produce more content like this and also save us from those interminable mattress ads. Then you can do that and also subscribe on the link that Jen just mentioned. And don't forget to head to yourparentingmojo.com to record your own message for the show.